peace in our human family. Volume and unity. Divine light shining individually. Collectively transforming community. Peace in our human family. As above, so below. Feel the pain in my soul. The rep he'll dissolve. Organize, no matter the cost. Politicians starts wars, they don't fight. They sit in the poor. And nothing lasts forever as long as we stay together. Give hell to the masses. Watch the unity rapture. This is for the kids and the culture. It's one love, one growth, one light. Light warriors. Hey, everybody out there on the waves. Um, out there waving and stuff like that, whatever. <laughs> My name is Jabar Jabari, and welcome to the Jabari Voc podcast. I'm starting to say Voc now instead of VOC because I'm tired of the acronym. I think Voc sounds a lot more cleaner and better. Um, and I have Kirill with me, who is a great friend of mine, comrade. Um, it's funny, Kirill, with me saying comrade now because after that article, they're like, oh, he calls everybody comrade. <laughs> <laughs> no, not everyone, I would hope. No, not everybody. I'm starting to get jealous here. <laughs> no, only certain people. <laughs> okay, good. 30 people, all the over 30 people I interviewed, I only called like four or five actual comrades, comrades. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, real, you do, you wear many hats. Um, and I tell you this all the time that you practically, at one point, it felt like you was running Connecticut. <laughs> Wrong hat. Sorry. Okay. Is that a back uh, part hat? It is. Yeah. <laughs> I could wear this, but awesome. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's fucking funny. So yeah, like I always say that he he wears many hats because like he's always involved with a lot of things. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that he's involved with, um, today. Um, so, Kirill, what should we begin with? You have this uh, nonprofit that you're starting off now called Peer Pride. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I could talk about that, start off with that. We could start yeah, off with start other off stuff, that. whatever you want. Um, yeah. So, Peer Pride is an all trans, majority Black, Indigenous, and people of color organization. We're mostly in Connecticut. Um, but most of us come from a background of doing some kind of like community peer support you know, either like crisis work, mental health work, um, suicidology stuff. Some of us come from backgrounds doing like equity education type stuff. Um, a lot of us do that type of work in very like niche specific fields. Like we got a dude who is specifically focused on like the athletic field and like equity in sports and in athletics. And he's a personal trainer and he's sick. He's dope. You should follow him. Um, Gabriel Resendez. But um Oh. And then we got another person who uh, specializes in like dietary restrictions and equity in food. So we have like a lot of different people with a lot of different areas of expertise, but the majority of the team is people that come from some kind of background doing some sort of peer support, mm-hmm. either, you know, suicide prevention or some kind of crisis support within their own communities. And we do different types of consulting. So we consult with schools, we consult with like businesses other professionals, et cetera, around competency. So primarily racial and LGBTQ competency. Mm -hmm. But a big project that we started right when we launched and 
that we actually are just getting funding for now that we're going to be able to kick off the ground is completely free open source software that is for anonymous, confidential, and secure remote peer support. And our goal with that is to be able to put that software in the hands of any community, any community organization that serves marginalized communities and is comprised of members of that community who want to do peer support that's safe from cops and that's safe from non-consensual interventions. And that's actually private and run by and for the communities. Um, so that's our big project right now is uh, bringing that software out into the world. And thankfully our team is pretty well equipped to do that. We have some amazing people who are working on the software, like actually writing the code and developing it. Um, and we also have people who will be ready once it launches to work with anybody to learn how to actually run a peer support service that's by and for your own community. And that's not reliant on like big hotlines that call the cops on you or reliant on like clinical mental health services that often don't work for like black, brown and trans people. Right. So that's, um, that's, that's the big project. That's the big thing that we're working on. Um, a lot of us come from nonprofit backgrounds and we've been kind of jaded by that. Right. Um, we are not a 501c3 currently, but um, we're aiming to get that status because everyone keeps recommending that we should um, because they think that our purpose is charitable. But um, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions about that um, yeah. project or the team or anything. Yeah, there's, a, there's I have quite a few. Um, <laughs> good. I think it's important that it's a good idea the, the issue with nonprofits, and I talked about this with Drea. Um, Shouts out to Drea. She's a Los Angeles indigenous woman um, that I do that I do podcasts periodically with. Um, she's dope. Um, we were talking about on her show one time about the issue with white nonprofits. Now, I say white nonprofits because it's literally the white nonprofits that do this bullshit. Um, I like how you automatically um, emphasize that you look at people of color and people that are in these groups and you get people from these groups that um, are, that know very well what is going on and have a better idea of how to execute because they have the experience. Why is that so important? And why do not <laughs> nonprofits? No, you, you guys are not even nonprofits yet. Uh, <laughs> but yet. why do other orgs do not do that? <laughs> oh gosh, let's see. You, you, you asked a million dollar question. Um, so I think actually the answer, right? The answer is kind of in your question. Um, and this isn't a dig at you, but I think that this is like, it shows a lot of how nonprofit mentality works. You said like, get people from these groups. And that's how a lot of white nonprofits tend to run. Mm. But like, be started by a few well-meaning white people that have like money from somewhere. And the guy, we're gonna put the money in this thing to help these populations that we're not a part of, right? And then suddenly they realize that like there's a massive disconnect between who they're claiming they're serving and like who they are and what they represent. And they're suddenly like, we need to get some tokens. So now that we've gotten some money for this project, we can hire somebody to like be the black or brown or trans face at our organization. And you know when that's when, when that equity and when that centering of a particular community is not baked into the organization from the start it's very hard to um artificially kind of graft that in right 
And we see that happen all the time, especially right now, you know, um, with so many people, like since the advent of Black Lives Matter, we see so many businesses and so many nonprofits suddenly being like, we want to hire diversity, equity, and inclusion people so that we can check our little box um, right, right. or just straight up, we want to hire black people, right? What they do, we don't care. We're just gonna hire some black people so that we can say that we have black people. And you have this constant burnout cycle. Same thing happens with black, brown, trans people, queer people, right? Depending on the organization, um, people will cycle in, act as the token, realize that that's all they're there for, and then cycle out because they don't feel like it's their space. And anytime they try to speak up, there's always gonna be some kind of pushback from the status quo and from the white people who run the organization. So that's that's a problem with a lot of nonprofits. I think um, you know, one of the one of the major issues, of course, is money and time, right? So if you have um, if you have a white founded, you know, white moneyed volunteer run nonprofit or a predominantly volunteer run nonprofit, you're gonna tend to draw on your volunteer base from the same communities that you tend to see around yourself, right? So like, mm -hmm. let's say I'm like, I don't know, white Karen, um, and I wanna start a thing and I put my money into it or I put some kind of other money into it or I get a grant or whatever. And I'm like, hey, I need some people to volunteer to do this project, who am I gonna ask first? I'm gonna ask my friends, right? I'm gonna ask the people that I know. So right. it's not gonna be people in the communities that I'm trying to serve, unless I'm actually a part of those communities. Um, <clears throat> why is it important to your point to have people who actually have the lived experience running the stuff? Um, it, I mean, A, it puts the power and the resources in the hands of the people who need it, um, in the hands of the people that have that experience and B, it prevents a lot of mistakes from happening. Um, it prevents a lot of like very basic, like ABC level, um, mistakes that a lot of people who are just learning the field of particular struggle would make, right? Um, so for example, um, if, if somebody's trying to create a resource that's accessible to people who are deaf and hard of hearing, right? And they don't have any people who are deaf and hard of hearing on their team, they're probably going to go through a lot of different, um, I don't know, like speech to typing softwares. You're going to go through a lot of different, like a lot of different resources that may or may not work because you're not actually consulting that community. So you're wasting resources, you're wasting time, and you're disrespecting the community that you claim to be serving. Um, right. Also, like if there's, you know, if there's a paycheck in question, then the people that are actually impacted should be getting that paycheck. That's just an ethical consideration. Um, and when it comes to mental health specifically, right? When it comes to peer support specifically, mm -hmm. um, this is a soapbox that I can get on for like 90 minutes, but I'm gonna crunch <laughs> it in. Um, in peer support, lived experience, right? When, when, you're, when you're a peer support specialist, you're usually in some kind of institution or in some kind of like agency or something. And your entire purpose is to provide support to somebody who's usually going through treatment or going through some kind of program or something like that. Um, from the vantage point of you had a similar lived experience, either with a mental health struggle or with substance use or something like that. So typically, right. lived experience and peer support is defined as one or more of two things. So either lived experience with mental health uh, diagnosis or struggle, or lived experience with um, substance use. That is what people say when they say lived experience, that's what they tend to mean. 
at Peer Pride and for a lot of people that are engaged in the type of peer support that I do, we look to redefine that meaning of lived experience. Because if you have some dude who's say an old white cis dude who is a peer support specialist and he had his struggle with alcoholism years ago and he identifies as a person in recovery and he identifies as somebody that shares this lived experience with alcoholism. Um, and he is paired with a peer that he's supposed to support who is a immigrant brown trans woman in her early 20s who just got kicked out and is drinking just to deal with it. Mm. Um, you're not going to have the same lived experience there. You're not going to have anything in common except this dude used to drink and she drinks now. That's not, that's not a shared lived experience. Um, so what we try to look at is like, how do you redefine lived experience as not just with the things that like clinical professionals are trying to treat, but lived experience with your identity, right? Lived experience with your, um, you know, what, what your culture is, what your background is, um, anything, um, anything else that makes you you outside of what somebody else could diagnose about you or label that could, somebody could put on you. Um, that's, that's kind of the vantage point that Peer Pride approaches things with, um, is we try to make sure that when people get support, when they're in a moment of crisis, they're getting it from somebody that they actually relate to. That's a, that's absolutely that's absolutely dope, um, and the the tokenism is so serious, especially within everywhere now. Um, it has gotten to that point with late stage capitalism that um, instead of trying to be nuanced, it's just like oh, we just need let's just get somebody involved. <laughs> let's just, yep. just pick a, a black person. Let's just. Pick an Asian yeah. <laughs> Intersectional imperialism. I saw this thing recently. Oh my God. There was um, the Navy, like, uh, named some kind of like Navy ship after Harvey Milk. And I was oh, like, freaking, excuse me, you did what now? Oh my God. I swear to God. Wow. Yeah, the Navy's yeah. been very uh, woke. <laughs> as of lately with their commercials and everything. <laughs> yeah. Not just the Navy, just should the whole sure military complex. Know. Yeah, people like people should be aware it's woke bombs now. Right. So it's okay. It is it is the season of wokeness. Um but <laughs> we all know that being woke is not like that's not really it shouldn't really be a thing. Like just, really just gives you an excuse to be like, oh, I'm hip, but then you're transphobic still. Oh, I'm hip, and then you're borderline racist still. You still have your biases. Oh, you're bombing people, you know. <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, it's like yeah. the person of color, but saying, oh, free yeah. all black people in your country. <laughs> Except those. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, back to the peer support. Um, So, yeah. like, how, how – so – are you so basically you were able to get this off the ground because of how all the great connections that you have built throughout the years, which is so important, or is it just something that um you you were like had in the bag for a while and then you felt like this is the perfect timing? Um so this is um this is a project that a number of us um who've been in the field have been working on for a while now. Um mm-hmm. I left my last job in, um, which was in a director level of 
a different international peer sport program in, in the summer. Um, and as soon as I left, I was like, cool, I have a lot of time to do this now. Um, and, you know, my experience in other peer support spaces, especially with like larger nonprofits, um, for me personally, really motivated me to want to do this. Um, so at, at my last, um, at my last job, um, which like it, it, it has a service that serves a lot of people at once. Um, mm. They decided to basically shut down their crisis support service, um, all but shut down. So leave it basically in the hands of a few volunteers for a month. Um, mm. And that obviously had a huge impact because it's like a one, one of a kind service. It, um, a lot of people would be relying on it and a lot of people weren't able to get support. And so for a lot of the people that were coming from these like large nonprofit backgrounds into trying to build something new, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, why don't we create another crisis hotline or text line? Like, why don't we create just an alternative straight up? Nice. Um, and then we took a step back and we thought about it. That's going to recreate the problem. We're going to be another organization that has one service and if we become corrupt or if we decide to shut down our service or if we don't have enough people or whatever, then a lot of people are going to suffer because of this monopolization of crisis services, especially monopolization of peer support and crisis services that are run by and for a particular community. So right. our goal was to um, create something we can then give to like any number of organizations and monopolize that power and demonopolize that resource and make it accessible to anybody who wants to build it at any level. Um, so it's something that we've had in the back of our minds for a while. Um, we, we, we just got the opportunity to fund it very, very recently. Um, from awesome. like, yeah, thanks to a really, really amazing funder, um, that funds a lot of grassroots projects and, um, we, yeah, so we're going to be moving forward on, on building that. And something that we're really excited to do is use this time while the software is being developed to build partnerships with any community organizations that would like to implement some kind of community-based crisis and peer support programming, especially with the pandemic. There's so many different people that um, need support. There's such a huge... Um, like growing need for mental health services. I'm sure you've seen everywhere that therapists are overbooked. There's all these like weird, sketchy online, like therapy things popping up everywhere um, that have their own interesting security and privacy implications, but that's not my um, <laughs> area of expertise. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a lot of need popping up and there's a lot of people who are looking for remote support. Um, so if we, were to, if we were able to empower organizations that, for example, are run by and for youth, organizations run by and for undocumented people, organizations run by and for people who are formerly and currently incarcerated. Um, and all these are the types of orgs that we're looking to partner with and the types of orgs that we're already partnering with. Um, you're gonna create opportunities to have services that are by and for people with that lived experience. Um, so that's, that's the objective. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been actively cooking since the summer. It was passively cooking since well before the summer. Got it. And so you're so you're you're basically um, this is kind of like a consultant uh, partnership as well too between different 
groups in the works, right? Um, and it's not sure. and it's mostly for like uh, it's not just trans based, but it's also for BIPOC community and also yeah. uh, immigrants' rights and stuff like that. That's a it's pretty awesome. Um, that's it's amazing. Um, and it, it's also educational for people that don't fully understand because um, we generalize a lot of things in America as part of our culture. Uh, we'll just say all black people and not go down the list of um, the state disabled black people, trans black people, um, queer black people, um, mental people struggling with mental health. I mean, it's all ways generalized and stuff. And they donate all this money to like the NAACP and then the NAACP give it to the Democrats. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you can't go. Right? <laughs> Just hand it off. Um, that was, I'm sorry for that shout on the NAACP, but it's kind of true. Yeah. And I only know one person on the NAACP, so I'm pretty sure they're not mm. here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true, though, and um, it's important to ed- it's it's very educational because when you hear all that, it opens up your mind more to what's going on. Um, was mm-hmm. that the the, the main? Uh, I, 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 you probably already answered this question, but I want to ask it again: Was that like the main focus to be that broad, or was there a first concentration concentration? Uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, um, the the focus was to, um, so like I said, we have two different branches of work that we do. One is like the development of the peer support resource. And the other is just like, we're all consultants on different topics for different stuff. Um, but uh, for the peer support thing, we've always wanted it to be something that's accessible to any group run by and for a marginalized community. Um, so yeah, it was, a lot of people will, and it's funny that you raise that because a lot of people will approach us and we'll be like, oh, we're assuming that we're funding a trans project because mm-hmm. everybody there is trans. And it's like, no, you're not, you're not funding a trans project. Um, you know, there's a, um, there's, there's a lot of different perspectives here just because everybody is trans doesn't mean that all the projects that we're going to be doing and empowering are going to be focused on trans people. Um, so yeah, that, that is that is an interesting observation also it's something that a lot of people have asked us about um yeah, yeah. yeah of course we we get consulted for trans competency a lot because that's a lot of our area of expertise but yeah and um do you have do you are you guys on social media yet or you, you only have like um a facebook page we are or? we are we're on we're on twitter instagram and facebook um and we have a website. Yeah, we don't have anything on there yet, but we're about to get stuff on there. We've been very busy doing back end stuff. Oh, that back end could be a beast. Yeah. <laughs> the beast is the back end. The beast. The back end yep. is the beast. <laughs> <laughs> so, who, so um, which regions are is your most present in as of right now? Or is it like randomly all over Connecticut? Do you mean like the team or like who our mm-hmm. clients are? Well, 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 client client base. Um, we have a lot of clients in Connecticut, especially people on the ground. Uh, when it comes to people that like we work with who do mental health and peer support work, that's more spread out. We've worked with people in the Midwest, like in the Chicago, Wisconsin area. 
We worked mm. with people in St. Louis. We worked with people in California. Um, yeah, so we that's a little bit more broad. Um, we're mm-hmm. looking to potentially start some partnerships in the Ontario region of Canada soon. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different things. The team is primarily in um, Connecticut or New York. But we have a couple of people that are outside of that. We have a, we have some people that are in Chicago right now. We have some people in California. Um, the reason why I asked that yeah. is because I noticed that you mentioned uh, monopolizing and the, trying to do anti-monopolizing um, mm-hmm. because you don't want to uh, fully take over. Um, but being mm-hmm. that spread apart, you know, you like um, and the need and how there's less of a need. Um, well, less of a, there's less help compared to the how big the need is um what why do you why do you think that um it will be a bad idea to monopolize i know that is a bad idea to monopolize in a lot of certain things but um is it what is it a fearful is it scary to like monopolize and just basically be the main one <laughs> well i mean um it if you look and see what happens with a large peer sport and like crisis resources, right? Um, I'm not going to name any specific names, but there are a lot of large names in, in the field. Let's say like with crisis hotlines specifically, right? There's a lot of big names that people tend to, you know, if somebody posts something that's sad, they'll be like, if this made you sad, call these numbers. And like, you'll Mm. see all the same numbers every time. Um, A lot of those resources a are so big that they don't have great centralized quality assurance. Um, a lot of them will like farm out callers to other places that like are not as um, as monitored um, or not as well trained. Um, period. There's not with a lot of the larger ones. There's not much equity oriented training at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big, big problem that we're trying to address in terms of structure and ethics is with the vast majority of crisis resources, they are directly tied to emergency services and police, which means that they can, you know, they can triangulate a call. They can, um, they have the person's phone number, at least. Um, yeah. They may have the person's address. They may have the person's name. And they hold the discretion unless they have some kind of block against that in their structure and in their system and in their policies, they have the discretion to, if you're having a bad day and you call a crisis line, they can choose to call the police to come bust down your door. And that's a very, very large amount of power to hold. And that's um, the larger, right? Let's say an organization has that policy where they choose to call the cops on people. If that kind of organization monopolizes crisis support, then people that are, more vulnerable are not going to be safe calling that resource. Not to mention the lack of, you know, any sort of training around, um, you know, racial or gender or any other kind of competency, um, which is also a separate problem. But um, just the sheer question of privacy and informed consent and exposing people to emergency services and cops and involuntary hospitalization, the more organizations like that get big and prevalent, the less there is opportunity for people to reach out to resources where they will actually have the choice of what happens to them in their care. So mm-hmm. that's that's one of the risks. Um, and this is how we get yeah. demonetized on Facebook because, you know, the cops, 
are not really good. Wellness checks and all that stuff. Um, you, well, sometimes, if not most of the time, when it's not recorded, you're sending in assassins and all the stuff like that, and it's not. Yeah. It's not something that you would want to be involved with. Um, and for mm-hmm. listeners that, that feel that that's controversial, um, I'm sorry, but that's the main truth. Um, when you look at, for example, Chelsea Manning, Chelsea Manning was out at a bar with her friends and the police just randomly came in for a wellness check into her apartment um, and she had cameras and it had guns out. It's like, bro, it's a wellness check or is this a coming to assassinate Chelsea Manning type of uh, scene going on right now. So just off of uh, that being high profile, there's no telling how it'll look for a, a, a young person of color that's, you know, has doesn't have any type of activist power that Chelsea Manning has or anything. Um, it could get even worse. Um, so I like I like that. I like how you explain that so importantly. Um, and that's a huge aspect Um to think about um have you seen other nonprofits? i uh, will actually no i don't want you to get to the naming <laughs> I mean, it could be a yes or no question yeah but have you okay yes or no question um is that a norm with with nonprofits like that with groups like that uh, is that a norm? i mean i don't know about nonprofit versus for-profit but it mm-hmm. is um so non-consensual intervention of some kind is typical of any resource that brands itself as suicide prevention. It's mm-hmm. there's not a lot of them that will just not do that. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's an example. There's one hotline that is fully informed consent that is really cool and has existed for a long time. Um, and I actually learned a lot from in terms of implementing land practices, which is Samaritans in New York City, specifically Samaritans in New York City, not the other ones, but New York City. Um, they have they for years had a fully informed consent policy, no non-consensual intervention, no non-consensual active rescue, nothing like that. Um, if a person calls and says like, I would like an ambulance called for me, then of course they'll do it. Um, mm. But if a person doesn't say that, they're not gonna like involuntarily send the cops in. Um, and a lot of resources are looking more and more towards um, avoiding you know, non-consensual intervention, or at the very least, at the very minimum, um, which in my opinion is not enough. Let's put that on the table. But mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of different mental health resources, including actually in the city of New Haven, there was recently a conversation about this. I wasn't able to attend, but I heard it was interesting about having mental health services independent of police interventions. So like having something come and help you that doesn't involve police. The reason I say that that's not enough is because there's also ample... Um, both anecdotal and statistical evidence that shows that any type of non-consensual hospitalization will, especially for marginalized people, invoke a lot of trauma and will actually up somebody's level of suicidality and just lower their mm-hmm. level of trust of any sort of peer support resources. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm very much, um, I'm, I'm one of those uh, I'm, I'm known for being a proponent of people choosing what kind of care they get. Um, and I'm also a big proponent of really taking a step back and understanding why are people suicidal? Why are people struggling with mental health stuff? Um, you know, we live in a system that teaches us that if your friend says that they want to die, they must be irrational, right? They must be in a moment of 
some kind of confusion or they're in a really bad place or or something like that that will eventually just pass and it will go away and this is happening for no reason except their brain is is just on the fritz but that's that's not true right if you live your life not knowing whether you're going to have a home day to day not knowing whether you're going to have the shit kicked out of you right not knowing whether you're going to have access to the medical care that you need constantly having slurs thrown at you you know your own family hating you not having access to basic resources and having to struggle to survive it is not irrational to not want to live that life it's not irrational to not want to be alive in a world that constantly teaches us that our lives have no value and that we shouldn't be alive and as trans people as trans people of color as people of color in general there's a lot of that experience to that um and I think that when we talk about suicidality, when we talk about crisis and mental health challenges, we need to talk about the system and we need to talk about um, how the responses that we have in terms of rage, in terms of anxiety, despair, depression, suicidality, those are all rational responses to a system that's inhumane. Mm. And anyone who's doing suicide prevention work who tells you, learn the signs, if your friend's giving away their stuff, or telling you that they love you a lot, they might be crazy and want to die suddenly. That's mm -hmm. not helpful. What's helpful is looking systemically, what are people dealing with? What can you support people with? Um, and if somebody is you know, dealing with ongoing mental health crisis, of course it's great to talk to people and be a listening ear and be non-judgmental, know how to be a source of support in that way. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that's really important for people to get through their heads is crisis is not irrational. It's a response to a system that doesn't work. That's, that's a very big point. Um, and I, 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 I have had these conversations um, talking about it and uh, one person automatically just freaked out on me. I was like, uh, you're enabling suicide. And I'm just like, no, I'm not enabling suicide. And um and, and I used to be suicidal when I was younger, but I can automatically see that it's always it's, it's it is also a material thing. It's the system itself. Um, mm -hmm. um, we're humans. We're animals. And what do animals do when they are in these situations? They make decisions. Um, yeah. And we have to re we have to respect that and see it in a different light instead of just automatically thinking. I don't want to say any names, but I know people that threw their kids into like this the, the 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 system like this put them into the um the wards and stuff like that automatically as soon as they saw their kids doing that and then they come out and they're more fucked up than they were when they were yeah. like out <laughs> of course when they went there and i mean there are some kids that are like oh well it worked for me but that's just uh, that what works for you works for you what works for me is different you know and you you can't be ableist and, and and just try to push that on somebody and stuff like that and yeah. um it's a very tough conversation and I feel that there's needs to be more more people like you Ivy um Kareel sorry Kareel that basically um give um this information out <laughs> educate these people because I remember when we did the Life of My Days event and everybody was saying um. You deserve to be here. Reach out. Don't do it. It's not right. And then you went on there and was just like, look, we got to look at what causes this, like the whole nuance of how you do it. And everybody was just quiet right after. They were just so shocked. Yeah, it's always like, awkward. 
<laughs> you get that a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, um, I, I do get that a lot. I feel like maybe that wasn't the place to do that because people were just like, oh, let's support each other as people with right. experience of suicidality. And I was like, as a person with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think it's. Um, I think it's good to have like a balance of just providing support to one another and checking in with each other and just being, you know, being there and actually thinking about each other and caring for each other. Cause one of the things that makes the system work the way that it does and break us down the way that it breaks us down is the lack of human connection and the lack of community and the lack of support. Um, and one of the biggest things that we can do is just be there for each other and check in with each other more often. Um, you're not gonna, you're not gonna change somebody's decisions by doing or not doing one thing or the other. Um, but you can, you can create an environment that makes a person more likely to want to stick around if you're improving their environment, whether it's materially or emotionally or whatever. Um, yeah. And to your point about hospitalization, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of really unique things about non-consensual institutionalization in the United States that um, impacts trans people specifically. Um, I can go off on a tangent about that. Um, oh, but shit. that's okay. that's definitely also one of the motivating things. For us. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I mean, no, you're good. Um, so, like, if you have trans friends and you think that your trans friends are struggling before you call emergency services on your trans friends who are struggling, some things to consider are that a hospitals are one of the most likely places for a trans person to experience sexual assault um, in the world. B, um, a lot of the time facilities are not set up to treat trans people adequately, right? So for instance, um, a person might be placed in a facility with people of the wrong gender. A person might not have access to the medication that they need or to the attire that they need. Um, a person might be dead name is gendered, um, you know, treated inadequately. <clears throat> a person might be interrogated about their body in inappropriate ways by professionals um, or even be forced to, depending on where you are, interact with like religious clergy um, before or, or with unsupportive family before you interact with your chosen family. Um, depending on where you are, a history of psychiatric hospitalization against your will could be a barrier to you receiving gender-affirming medical care in the future. Because, for instance, okay. if I go, you know, in a particular state, if I go and look at getting surgery right, and I need to get a psychologist to sign off on it and look at it and they see that I have a history of psychiatric hospitalization, they might say, oh, no, you're too crazy. We're not going to approve this. And people have used, um, you know, a history of non-consensual hospitalization as an excuse for either putting, putting um, like pumping brakes on somebody accessing treatment or, you know, just completely refusing to write a letter. Um, mm. So there's a lot of like very, very long-term longitudinal impacts that come from that one decision to like call an ambulance for somebody um, who's experiencing mental health crisis. Um, not to mention, right, the bills, right? You're not going to be the one paying that ambulance bill. That person is going to be stuck with that ambulance bill. Um, right. So there's, and there's a whole new challenge. 
Yeah. <laughs> Plus, like, let's say somebody gets carted off and they have a job and they right. get fired because they weren't there. We've had a lot of experiences where I've supported young um, trans and queer people who were not out to their families, um, but called a crisis hotline because they were having a hard time. And by means of the non-consensual intervention that happened where the cops and the emergency people came, they were outed to their families without their consent. And then once they were released from the hospital, their families kicked them out. So there's there's a lot of like long-term impact that happens with trans and queer people, but especially with trans people. Um, and when you're making that decision, it's really important to think about like, what are you, what impact are you having on this person's life? How much or how little are they gonna trust you in the future when they're struggling now even more because they now have a new trauma from this experience of hospitalization and police interaction. So, yeah. Sorry, I talk a lot. You should like ask me questions because I can just like yak. No, no, you're fine. You're <laughs> fine. This is a podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even have a little yak. Wait, this isn't a yak. This is a cow. Okay, never mind. I'm gonna like <laughs> see illustrate what I got my right here. You want to see my little cat? Oh snap! What is that? Is that phone holder? <laughs> I think this is Nikki's, but I was using it to like hold my phone up. Oh snap! Mine is boring. It's just a thing, <laughs> which is weird, considering how many animals I have on my desk. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's very that's very good information. And for people that are listening, like, please take this information to heart and, and understand how important this is, because we are told the total opposite, and we don't see the repercussions, especially for people that don't even have health care or their health care is like so expensive and they don't want to they they have issues but they don't want to always go to the hospital they don't always want to go to the hospital because once you get on that bed it's a whole grand and then it's another grand and it's another grand like i was so mad when that happened to me once when i was like uh 22 years old and stuff and i had like a uh i was going i can't even pronounce the word i i, I basically had after like shock or something like that like I, it was hard to oh pronounce. like an allergy yeah yes and I knew what to do. I put my EpiPen in. And I did yeah. this before. So I'm like, bro, I'm not going back to the hospital. Okay? I'm just going to go home. I'm going to go home, chill and relax. God forbid what they do. They already called the ambulance. The ambulance is already on the way. I already told them. I was so mad. I was so mad. <laughs> I'm on this ambulance. They're checking my vitals. <laughs> I got this resting bitch face on my face. I'm just like, bro. Oh, my God. Bro. This is going to cost some shit. And then the bill came in <laughs> a few weeks later. Yep. Yep. And then your whole rent and a half. <laughs> right? Yep. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. I had to appeal and, and show them that I'm broke and all this stuff like that. And Part yeah. D came in, thankfully, like a year later, I believe. I forgot how that oh. went down. But I didn't ended up not being able to pay it because Part D saved my life. Shouts out to Part D. But, um, it's it's a real thing, you know, and and I'm we're fortunate to be in Connecticut where there is a Medicaid. Um, it's yeah. not like that in Texas. It's not like that in Arizona or any other red state. It's it's pretty uh it's bad. Like you are literally on your own with these medical bills if you don't have uh, affordable health care or health care like uh, yeah. Medicaid um, in Husky. Husky is dope. Yeah, Husky's really dope. 
Husky, Husky is um, the best insurance I've ever had. Husky down. for all. That's my mom. Mm-hmm. Husky for all. <laughs> yep. I'm a fan. I don't want to get rid of it. I'm like, every time, I'm like, yo, please, please accept me. And you know what's funny? A lot of people don't really know about Husky, especially in Connecticut. They don't. Um, yeah. It's crazy. It's like they don't advertise yeah. it. People look I, at me so like you don't pay copays. <laughs> there's so many trans people who move here, like have no job, have no money, and they're like, I want to get surgery, start a GoFundMe. And right. I'm like, dude, Husky, come on, like, you gotta apply for it. <laughs> you you are eligible, you need to get on the Husky. It is very important. My partner literally yeah. looked at me like I had two heads when I told her about that. She was like, Husky. About Husky? Yes. She was like, that doesn't exist. Doesn't she work in medicine somewhere? Yeah, but, you know, she's <laughs> she's from Wallingford. And I guess a lot of Wallingford people don't know about Husky. <laughs> okay. Interesting. <laughs> because even her parents were like, what? And her mom's a nurse. <laughs> I bet she I knew. Have so many she questions. just didn't really look into it. That's probably what it was. Like, she knew about it, but she didn't really look into it. She probably just assumed it was, like, um, some prerequisite or something like that. I don't know what she think. But, um. Yeah, I was so shocked. So I got her on. I'm on. We're all husky babies now. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was so Dope. shocked. She was like, "So I don't have to pay anything?" I was like, "No, you're good. <laughs> Make sure the tax brackets is right because they always check where that money is at." <laughs> yep. Um. Yeah, and husky is very good for um LGBTQ people, right? Like it's a, it gives a lot more options, right? Especially for trans, right? It does. So um, it, it does cover pretty much everything. Um, that being said, uh, insurance legally everywhere is supposed to cover every medically necessary thing, um, especially state insurance. But mm-hmm. there's obviously insurances that will try to crawl through loopholes with that. Husky is pretty good with stuff. The only thing that you want to look out for on Husky is like who they'll cover in terms of if you want to get a surgeon. Um if you want to go out of state for surgery, it can be it can be tricky. But there are some decent um, there there are some decent options in state yeah. as well, depending on what you're looking for. But um, and that's the only thing to keep in mind that is that can be a struggle. Okay, so you know, there's always a cost to everything in this country. You got to look for the right surgeons. Make make sense, you know, um, especially just to get a dentist, like. Uh, yeah, What's why are teeth not considered bodies? I don't know. I don't get that. I mean, with Husky, there's weird. dental stuff, but like, there's been I so many insurances that I've seen. Yeah. Chiropractor. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My back be like yawning and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's just my back just does my back like that. That's a mind of his own. It's like, Today you're calling out of work, Jamar. That's literally how I'm back. <laughs> My God, we're not doing shit today, Jamar. You're going to sit down and put that massager on and watch Netflix. <laughs> Do you have one of those rolly things? Yeah. Um. Shout out to uh, Nikki's sister. She got me like this. Uh, this crazy ass like massager that like it's like a the rolls are very like hard. And it mm-hmm. heats up. So you have the option to have it like no heat and then with heat. But if you do the heat, you got to be careful because it will burn you. 
Um, but it's a good burn, honestly. You know, I, I don't mind that. <laughs> Have you ever tried those like pokey things? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a pillow and it's got like the, the the wheels that have like the spikes on them and you lay back on it. No, but that sounds amazing. My mom like swears by those shits. Anytime my back hurts, she puts me on the spiky thing. Hurts like yeah. a bitch. But then it's like, it, it stops hurting and it just feels warm and it's like you get up and you're like, oh. And oh, you wow. have holes on your back. But yeah, gotta, it's so, so cool. Yeah. That sounds really cool. I don't know I what it's look- called, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe like acupressure pillow or something. I don't know. Ooh, you know, acupuncture is amazing. I like that. I want to try it. Yeah. I wonder if there's one around New Haven. Oh, I don't know. I bet. You know, there definitely is. Yeah, my dad used to go to one. Oh, really? That needled. I got to look into that. Maybe Husky will cover that too. That'd be dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know, we're we're getting down to it. Getting down to ten minutes and stuff. I'd love to have have you back on because you know, like, there's a lot we can talk about. A lot, you know, and there's too much we can talk about. But one thing I want to talk about real quick before we close out, because you were talking about um, the social workers uh, being first responders and how that can be an issue um, with certain cases. Um, um, That's what a lot of uh, people are saying that's going on with, I believe it's Portland. Don't, Don't correct me. Correct me if I'm wrong, somebody on there. It may be Portland. I can't think of the reason. It's a major city that has tried that, but the issue is they didn't change their social worker. They didn't train your social workers uh, good enough to handle certain things, and they called them for certain things that are not really as effective. I have to look into this study. This is something that I just recently learned about. Um, yeah. But what would you think would be a good idea for first responders? Um, I mean. For for reducing harm, it's always good to get like armed thugs off of, you know, any type of any type of response. Like, no, you know, we don't we don't need cops responding to mental health crises. Um, At the same time, I think, right, if you have if you have some kind of social service that is there to check in on people, et cetera, et cetera. you need to have adequate funding for it and you need to train people. You can't just allocate a small amount of funding to it and be like, this is how we're transforming the system. You have mm-hmm. to actually like reconstruct everything. Um, and the, I mean, I think, I think really the, the big answer there would be an absolutely complete restructuring of the system where that type of service gets an enormous amount of funds that wouldn't go to the police or to the military or to whatever other ridiculous bank bailouts that, um, you know, our corporation support that this government does um, and actually train people with a focus on empowering peer support. Um, Because there's a lot of potential that peer support holds if it were to be empowered as a massive field of community work that is run by and for communities. Um, unfortunately, right now, uh, certified peer support specialists are kind of like underdogs in clinical settings where they're hired at abysmally low wages. Um, right. They're not treated as specialists the same way that you know other clinical workers are. Um, 
and they're very much, you know, not appreciated there. And a lot of the time peer support workers like aren't even given tasks that are pertinent to their area of work. Um, so really expanding that field, really looking critically at what clinical mental health work looks like and how it's done, you know. Um, and most importantly, you know, changing changing the material circumstances for people, right? Making healthcare free for everybody, all healthcare, you know, risky for all. Um, <laughs> making sure that people can access whatever they need, making housing a human right, making, you know, having some kind of financial security, a human right, um, whether it's a job or whether it's other kind of social support. Um, having, you know, massive community education programs um, that empower people to work against racism, work against homophobia, transphobia, right? We see that being done on smaller scales in other countries. And we see a lot of really massive results in the quality of mental health um, as a result of that. So, right, this goes back to how do we, you know, the question was how do we change um, on the ground responses to mental health crisis? I think in order to change that fundamentally, we need to change what people are even responding to in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that brings us back to systemic change and that brings us back to economic rights and that brings us back to dismantling capitalism. Um, but I think a starter would be funding peer support, funding social services that are trained in an equitable way with a focus on marginalized communities, taking money away from police departments and putting them into those social services and into educational systems um, and making healthcare a human right for free on demand for everyone. And those are things that I make sure every single time that is always repeated because it's important that it's drilled into people's heads that they can always remember when you're dealing with some bullshit, um, materialized while, and then you got the IRS sending you emails and all this stuff. Just remember, it's not because you got to pull yourself up by the bootstrap, the bull, the, the bootstraps, the bootstraps, the bootstraps. It's because capitalism sucks. (laughs) You're doing your best. You're doing fine. You are always doing your best. All right. Don't let no one tell you get your like you gotta get your shit together. No, no, no. That doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Everybody needs to learn that capitalism sucks. And some people might disagree with me, but that's okay. That's on them. They could they could do that if they want to. <laughs> they could try. Uh, Kirill, what plugins? Yeah. How can people reach you? Uh, you can find us at peerpride.com. You can find us on Facebook. It's peerpride one word. Um, it, you can find us on Twitter, peer underscore pride, um, and on Instagram. Let me make sure that I have it right. It's also peer underscore pride. Awesome. Awesome. And like I said, Karel wears many hats. So this is just like 10% of what Karel does. <laughs> um, I had I had his spouse on earlier, Chris Graffa, which is also another dope um, activist and does a lot of shit too. This is a power couple. They literally are just like a godsend to this world. And I want to thank you all so much yeah. for being my friend and also being my comrades. And Thank you, Jamar. Yeah, you're dope. Like, dope. I mean, I tried to. It's a dope, dope project. But... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, you have some really cool people on here. 
I was, no, I have some sus people too, but I won't get to that. Well, I mean, That's you don't have to. Know like, your choice. Why did you have them on here? <laughs> I don't know who they are, but why did you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is guy, and he probably is going to hear this, and I want him to hear this because it's kind of weird. This is guy that that there's reptilians or something like that, and he wants me to go on his podcast and debate him about capitalism and stuff like that. Um, that sounds very anti-Semitic and some ish. I really don't want to get into. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, I would steer directly clear of that. that right, the podcasting like a- world is interesting. <laughs> It is. It is. There's a lot. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, yes, there is. Everyone has a podcast now. Yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you should do one I will too, not have a podcast. No, 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 no. No one wants to hear me for hours and hours and hours. That is. That sounds like a terrible experience. Plus, like, too many of the people I know already have them. You got one. Chris and Ray got one. Yep. <laughs> Everyone got one. Got too many podcasts to follow. Right. You literally just like, oh, I got to hear this. They got to hear this. They got to hear this. Oh, did new Loud and Clear come out? I listened to Loud and Clear. So much listening material. But let me let you go. I'll talk to you later, Kirill. Um, I'll see you, see you this week, actually, but. Uh, yeah. Have a good day, and uh, you're. Are you still in your office? Office, or you got your office? Office is in a different spot. What? I'm in my house. House with my magic oh. carpet. Okay. Yeah, I don't have. I have my office is a corner of my living room. Oh yes, there you go. That's how you do it. That's about to be me real soon. <laughs> All right. See you later, right. and bye, everybody. Bye. Collectively transforming community Peace in our human family Volume and unity Divine light shining individually Collectively transforming community Peace in our human family As above, so below, feel the pain in my soul, the rep he'll dissolve. Organized, no matter the cost, politicians starts wars, they don't fight, they sit the poor. And nothing lasts forever as long as we stay together, give hell to the masses, watch the unity rapture. This is for the kids and the culture, it's one love, one growth, one light, light warriors. All right.